This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Religion, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Blair Hodges. I'm a newcomer here on the New Books Network. It's great to be here. And we're recording this interview in Salt Lake City, where I also produce a podcast called Fireside with Blair Hodges. And if you enjoyed this interview, I suggest checking out Fireside as well. All right, let's dive in here. I'm joined today by Jason Olson. He's author of The Burning Book, a Jewish Mormon memoir. Jason, I'm excited to talk to you about this book. Thank you, Blair. Glad to be here. We're also joined by James Goldberg, an award-winning author of fiction, drama, poetry, and more, and he co-authored The Burning Book with Jason. James, it's great to be here with you. Yeah, I'm so excited for this. I want to start by talking about memoirs in general, Jason. You have a PhD from Brandeis in Near Eastern and Judaic Studies, and you've published with an academic press as well. But this book in particular is subtitled A Jewish Mormon Memoir. So I wondered, you're a fairly young scholar. Did you have any reservations about dropping the scholarly voice and doing something a lot more personal like a memoir? To a degree. But yeah, this is a personal story, and it's a a memoir story, and I, I needed to tell it. There's uh, both religious and, and scholarly reasons to, to tell it in this way. So, yeah, I wanted to do something that is a memoir, is a personal story, but it's informed by all my years of scholarship. And I think that's what we, we produced. I know some scholars just, you know, they have that hesitation of talking because this is also religious. This has a religious sensibility to it. And yeah. so what, how about that angle? And there's some confessional elements to the book. You're talking about religious faith. Yes, that it's, it's no holds barred. I mean, we're, it's raw, it's, it's honest, it, it's the, the true story. But I, I also knew that writing it in this way, in, the, in a memoir style, would have a wider audience. People are going to pick up a compelling story that, that flows, that, that keeps suspense going. And I just thought it's about the message for me, and I wanted to, the message to reach more than I could with purely uh, academic form of writing. And you teamed up with James Goldberg, who's here as well. So, James, how did you get involved with this project? So, Jason and I have known each other for years, and memoir's really hard, because when you're writing scholarship, you you can start with a big base of shared knowledge with your assumed audience, right? When you're doing memoir, it's a little different, and there are different expectations people bring to religious memoir specifically. Jason reached out to me because we'd had conversations about what it means to have sort of a a multiplicity of religious heritages and those felt connections and obligations, and he really wanted to tell a story that was true to all of it. And in any given faith, a lot of times like conversion stories, that genre has a weight and a gravity of its own. So if you want to tell a more nuanced, 
complicated story, you really need to be able to sit down sometimes and think through how do you bring out the different layers and then incorporate them into a narrative. So so Jason just reached out to me and said, I've been I've been working on this. I've been struggling on this. And I just feel like, man, it'd be nice to work with you again. And this is so much in my area of thematic interest that I, I was really excited uh, to work with Jason's just wildlife story. I wonder if historians and other scholars would be tempted to do kind of the same thing. We don't really see this very often with academic books. And some of them, they don't, they're, they're not exciting reads as much, right? The, what kind of elements do you think could be stronger in academic writing, James, coming from, uh, from a background of writing fiction and drama plays and things like that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of what we're drawn to in fiction and in memoir is point of view, not just what happened, but how did people feel about it? How did they think about it? And I honestly feel like sometimes in history specifically, we get so busy confirming details of events and analyzing broad patterns that we miss that a lot of lived experience is that point of view, is the way people felt and thought about things. And so I think even in historical writing, there are ways to make historical characters more vivid and to help create a sense of, of moment and reaction, perception and reaction. It's kind of a waste of time, but I couldn't help as I was reading it to, to see, like, I've read other things by you that you've written, James, and I wondered, like, could I detect James's voice or, or moves? And, you know, I felt like maybe I could, but I, I'm just looking at the prologue, for example, which starts off so strong, Jason. It says, when I came into this world, I was named twice. That's a great opening line that we'll get into, but I'm wondering where that one came from. I think we we just discussed these things, James and I, and we just, it was very dialectic. We, yeah, we talked about my Hebrew name and, you know, Yehoshua, and we, we later on that has this interesting twist with the shortened abbreviated name Yosh and, and thinking through identity at the very beginning, you know, we, as we talked about, that's what I wanted. I, I wanted to explore Jewish identity, Mormon identity, and and how I wrestled with it. And so I think that's we, we just kind of mutually agree. Let's let's start it off with that. And I will say, a lot of times the introduction gets written at the end, and this book is is no exception. We had another introduction quite early, but revisited, and that line was very late. Because we were thinking, now that we've had all these conversations, now that we've finished the memoir, how do we set the expectations for the story that, that we ended up telling? And that detail really stood out to both of us as, as a meaningful way right at the beginning. Because, okay, when you're talking about Jewish identity, but then you've got someone who's also got these other religious convictions outside of normative Judaism— how do you balance that, right? You don't want to overclaim Jewish identity, but neither do you want to deny where you're where you're from and what matters to you and what tugs at your heart. And this this image of the two was was a nice way to get at that. That really felt reality. It also felt a little bit like the Latter Day Saint scripture, the Book of Mormon, where I mean, it begins. That book begins with a person called Nephi who introduces himself by talking about his family and situating himself. And you do that in the prologue, Jason. You you say your mother, who's Jewish, chose that name, Jason. Uh, because it means healer in Greek, and she kind of had that, she thought that was a beautiful thing, an ambition for you. Yeah. And then your last name, Olson, comes from your father's Lutheran family. So as, as James said, this is a mixed faith household from the beginning. Talk a little bit about that background. Yeah, it's it's a background laden with confusion and also tolerance <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> and I, I adore my mother and father equally and devotedly. Yeah, and they they when they married, 
They met at University of Illinois, and she was a Jewish girl from Chicago. He was a Anglo-Saxon farmer boy from Salem, Oregon, <laughs> and um, and they wound up at the same university, and they they fell in love. And neither were particularly religious at the time of their their romance, and so they they got married. They didn't think about the implications that it would have on their children's identities, which is something that is a big deal for me now, which we can always get into more. But because my because Jewish identity is so strong. And my father was so respectful of my mother's Jewish identity and felt this privilege, right, to be kind of from a, a Protestant evangelical kind of way of thinking. Oh, I get, you know, I'm marrying into the, the covenant people <laughs> kind of idea. He felt privileged and kind of deferred to my mother to uh, raise the children with Jewish identity in, Jew- in Jewish faith. And so, so I primarily participated in the synagogue, the Reformed Jewish synagogue, and, and went through the, the, the life cycle events and bar mitzvah and holy days and Hebrew school, and my identity was claimed as a Jew, um, even though I, I knew in, you know, in the back of my mind and, and also in the front of my eyes that I have this Bible-believing Christian father who his faith is untouched. He's very clear Christian faith, but this reverence for the Jewish people that he had at the same time, which at, in those days enabled me to kind of fully claim a Jewish identity and not really be yeah. yeah yeah sometimes when you when you say mixed faith household people assume that's 50-50 in terms of your experience but Jason's dad had this more quiet internal frame for how to express faith right whereas there's the communal they, they were part of this reform synagogue and and Jason got super into we talk about in the book bar mitzvah preparation he's the kind of guy where people are saying to his mom someday he's going to be a rabbi mm-hmm. right someday he's going to be a rabbi so so yes mixed faith but also a, a very Jewish upbringing and self-identification as Jewish and public right yeah like pe- people around you saw you as as fully Jewish and and had expectations about what your life would be like that that matched your own expectations yeah. early mm-hmm. Oh, thanks, James. And Jason, was your father practicing? Did he attend a congregation? Was he practicing Lutheran, or was that more? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting question. So, growing up, not not as much. He was not very active in in his local Lutheran church. Um, he was very supportive of, of the the wife and the kids being active in the Reformed Jewish synagogue. But he kind of he didn't want to create too much confusion. I think. And um, yeah, it, what James said, he had a quiet faith. He wasn't trying to express it to the rest of the family. He was content with his children claiming these Jewish identities, and and he was there at our bar and bat mitzvahs. He was, he was there for those moments when we're forming ourselves as Jews. Um, but he never, you know, never interested in converting to Judaism or getting too active in Christianity. Was it a big deal for your mother to marry outside to marry someone who wasn't Jewish? It's yeah. Interestingly enough. More from my grandmother, who was, she's my maternal grandmother, Gilda. She was the one who really wanted to keep Jewish identity alive, even though she was quite secular. So I think there was initially some hiccups, but they they loved my dad. They had a Jewish wedding. Those days, only really reform rabbis would would marry uh, interfaith couples. And and they, they grew to embrace my father and trust him. 
And so I think they quickly overcame any hesitancy about my mother marrying outside of her faith. To some, it might seem prejudiced to hear that someone would prefer to marry someone, like for, for a Jewish person to say, I really, it's really important to marry a Jewish person. Maybe give us a little bit more about why that matters and, and where that comes from. Yeah, so that's great. It's, I think, underneath it all, I mean, it's it's a, a theological presupposition dealing with, with biblical issues, but there is this idea that holds Judaism together that the entire Jewish people collectively made a covenant with God at Mount Sinai. And we, we know the story, and they received the tablets, they received the Torah, but that the, the whole nation voluntarily went into this covenant relationship with God, and uh, keeping that memory of, of the revelation and the covenant intact requires that marriage happen between members of, of the community. And it throughout Jewish history, as, as those who are in the know, you know, there was always external pressures that kept Jews from marrying outside of the Jewish community because in Eastern Europe and, th- and throughout all the countries of the diaspora, other religions didn't want to marry Jews. So we have this conundrum once Jews reach America that non-Jews want to marry them for the first time really— broadly in Jewish history that non-Jews are wanting to marry Jews. They're seen as attractive in spiritual, physical, cultural ways. And I think that's what we kind of see going on in my own family. This, for a non-Jew, it's a privilege to marry a Jewish person, but that's not that that's not common at all in Jewish history. It's always Jews were forced to be separate, I would say. Do you think the Shoah or Holocaust has played a role in some Jews' desire to see their own children marry within Judaism? Oh, Absolutely. I mean, even as a child, we were shown Holocaust films and discussed the Holocaust, and and the idea was, you know, you can't let the six million die have died in vain. You've got to marry Jewish. You've got mm. to replenish the Jewish people by marrying Jewish, so that Hitler doesn't have a you know post mortem victory kind mm-hmm. of idea. Um, and and that's that's there. Right? Did you hear about that yourself? As oh a yeah, person. I mean, that was fed to me. I think directly in Scottsdale, Arizona. Mm. Um, and, and I bought into it and I, I struggled with it all throughout my conversion and, but it's not that it's propaganda. It's, it's the real thing. It's, we, we've, we've lost so many Jews. We got to re, we got to rebuild as a people. In one of our dialogues with some Jewish scholars and religious leaders during the process of writing the book, they talked about how this idea of Jewish survivalism that comes after the Holocaust. So you have Jason's grandmother's generation went through World War II, went through the Holocaust So then his mother's generation is the generation after with high intermarriage rates. And then what they found is a lot of times when people intermarried in a Christian society, it was just easier to raise kids Christian. And so the minority of children in um, mixed marriages were being raised Jewish. So from like late 80s through 90s into early 2000s was this high water mark of those pressures in reform circles, et cetera, to make sure we ad- we address what they saw as this demographic crisis. And mm. since then, maybe it's it's eased out a little bit, but certainly when Jason and I were growing up, there there were these messages. Mm. And, and you received, I mean, you, so you I, were born into a Latter-day Saint family, I was born family, into right? a Latter-day Saint family, but I remember yeah. my cousin who was Jewish and married a Christian, there was a discussion about interfaith marriage, right? And and the rabbi there had said, the question was asked, when you see a little kid from an interfaith marriage, what do you see? And you had different people giving different writer answers. And then one particular participant who just said, I see a corpse. 
mm. because I see the death of Jewish tradition. And my cousin, of course, was was very upset yeah. Yeah. that this was the way this was addressed. And yet there's an element to that, right? This anxiety was, do we lose a long cultural tradition, a way of life, if we don't ensure that people are being raised Jewish in each generation. It seemed from the story that you tell in the book also that you had a role to play in choosing what was going to happen. Let's go to the age of 14 for you. This is a a moment in the book where you're kind of making a decision between whether you wanted to become Christian or maintain this Jewish identity. So take us to that point. Yeah, so 14, it's a year after my bar mitzvah. I've voluntarily chosen a Jewish life with no holds barred. I, I was eager to do a bar mitzvah, become a son of the commandments. I was into Torah. I was into the, the laws. I wanted to live them. I wanted uh, to have a vibrant Jewish life. And so this is just a year later, and I've, I've already made my choice of who I want to be, even though I know I know my father's Christian. He, it's over there, but I, I want to be Jewish, and I, I, I want my life to be centered on Torah. But then um, I continue the post-bar mitzvah education in Hebrew high school twice a week kind of classes for for Jewish teenagers. And we had a special speaker one night who introduced himself as Mitch, a Jews for Jesus missionary. And the the irony is I never thought about the Messiah or anything about the Messiah up until that point. I knew my father believed Jesus is the Messiah, but I never asked I never was really interested in the Messiah's mission or what the Messiah is supposed to do. I was so focused on on Torah and Moses and Jewish peoplehood and commandments that I I didn't think about this redemption figure. Um, and he preached about uh, Jesus being the Messiah and Isaiah 53 and, and many other things. My confusion grew. I And people in the class were kind of getting up in arms, right? They, they were. paint this picture of people being, why are you bringing this Christian in here to talk to us? Exactly. My, my buddies, because this is my... I, I grew up with all the kids around me. We went to Jewish summer camp together. We played Gaga, you know, this Israeli game. Uh, we, you know, all this, all the crushes and everything. All these, these are my crew, and they're they're like, we, this guy's got to get out of here. What? <laughs> what? The rabbis have lost their minds to bring a Jews for Jesus missionary into our sanctuary, right? And but I'm like, well, I, I gotta. This is an opportunity for me to hear maybe what my father believes. Because I've never even asked my dad mm. what he believes. I just wasn't interested. Yeah. I was religious, but I wasn't interested in Messiah questions. Plus, your dad was really boring. No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he was great. He was great. I just wasn't asking those questions and until he enters, right? And there's uproar. The rabbis are trying to field all these <laughs> questions from Jewish teenagers. And it's a great there's anger. Scene, yeah. And we're, gonna, we're not going to pay our dues anymore in this synagogue. Why are you bringing missionaries in here? I'm yeah. going to tell my my father he's on the board, right? That kind of that kind of stuff. And the rabbi's like, "Calm down. We want you to hear both sides. We're going. We've invited another speaker to share our traditional Jewish perspective on issues of Christianity and Messiah." I'm like, "Okay, okay, okay. Well, that's all right." <laughs> so Mitch leaves. We're all waiting in anxiousness for the new speaker to come and and so we can hear what you know we've been taught our whole lives and we we wrote the the head rabbi always said you know christianity is a beautiful religion but it's not for us and i i'll, I'll never forget when he said that and we're waiting and in comes the same guy mitch is it's back. mitch <laughs> yeah. 
But instead of this, you know, goofy Jews for Jesus t-shirt, he's dressed in a suit. He's got his kippah, his talit. He reveals his true secret identity that he's Rabbi Tovia Singer, mm. uh, an Orthodox rabbi, founder of Outreach Judaism, counter-missionary Jewish organization that tries to get Jewish people out of Christian organizations and back into their Judaism. And he unplugs everything that he said is Mitch and shows us, you know, and says, this: these are the deceptive techniques that Christian missionaries will try to use to convert you. So I wanted to expose you now so you're not shocked. And then I want to arm you so that you can, you know, preserve your Jewish heritage, your your Judaism. And I was like, oh. But I was like, but I felt so deceived because I don't believe in role-playing religion. Mm-hmm. Even, I mean, we could talk about the MTC years later. I just, religion should always be sincere or we don't we don't do it at all. That's the Latter-day Saint Missionary Training Center, right? That's where. Yeah. And we'll get there. But so Mitch comes in and he's, now he's this. He's Rabbi Tobias Rabbi, Singer. Yeah. And I'm kind of like, well, he's Orthodox. And I'm like, oh, I'm a little orthodox. <laughs> I mean, I want to do the, I want to do the, you know, I want to do the commandments. Which I want is to even do the more, mitzvahs. right, than you the reform tradition. You're right. Doing, right. This is a more serious commitment. So it, I'm, yeah. So I'm like, well, maybe this guy could be a guide to me. I never had like an orthodox rabbi come into my life. And I'm, I'm kind of curious about this figure. Start setting his website. And, and, and that's where we, I start working with my, talking to my Latter-day Saint friends. Do you think if Mitch hadn't shown up that you would have had the same type of questions and experience? Like, do you feel like that was a linchpin or some kind of like fork in the road that that set you more toward yeah. Christianity than sort of would have kind of backfired a little bit then? For yeah, what they wanted and we, to we've do. been talking about this about apologetics and you know what's the role of apologetics? Are they even helpful or useful? What yeah. are they? And I don't think so because I I wasn't asking questions about the Messiah. I wasn't. I was not interested in the end of days. I was interested in now. I was very religious. I prayed. I wanted to keep the mitzvahs, rapping, tefillin, reading Torah, studying Torah deeply. But my perspective was all about this concrete world and, and bringing holiness and doing good deeds, um, doing doing mitzvahs now. I'm not, I wasn't anxious about the world to come, the millennium. I just didn't think about it. It just wasn't in my process. But then now I'm confronted with Tovia Singer, who's Either Jesus is the Messiah or he's not. I think he's not. But, yeah. right, and so now I have to deal with and the question though, of the Messiah. Even though you came out really strong pro-Tovia Singer, right, embracing his approach early, it still did change the kind of questions you were asking. Exactly. Right. That's Jason Olson. He's author of The Burning Book, a Jewish Mormon memoir. Okay, so let's get to where you're becoming Latter-day Saint. And, James, I'll throw this one over to you because I kind of want to hear— uh, from your perspective, as you're helping put together this part of the book, um, you're reading a conversion narrative. This is Jason talking about how he came to become a Latter-day Saint and the process of that. The Book of Mormon, the Latter-day Saint scripture playing a big role in that. So, so James, give us a little bit of that part of the story. Yeah, I guess one thing I'll say is that when Jason first reached out to me, he said, I've told my conversion story before. I've told it to Latter-day Saint audiences. And the focus, when I was young and newly converted— was primarily on, here's all the things I embraced, right? And and sort of fitting those expectations within the community of what does a conversion story look like. And obviously he did have his own strong, unmistakable experiences that are part of that. 
But how you make meaning of those experiences, how you tie them together is going to emphasize some things over others. So when we went again to write this story, one of the things he was interested in is showing how there's some difficulty, there's some loss along the way. There's family struggle. And how, how can you be more honest about that and about the family's perspective in there and, and give them some credit, which is not easy to do at the time. Another thing I would say is in retrospect, having done Jewish studies, PhD, etc., Jason was in more of a position to stop and think about what are the questions I was bringing. So, so we tell a story of what are the Jewish questions that he was asking the Book of Mormon how can he recognize now that it was maybe different than other forms of Christianity he might have run into? And then we deal with these questions of his own ideas about family and culture and, and Jewish covenant and how they relate to conversion and managing all the that difficult side as well. Yeah, that's right on. And I told James from the beginning, I said, I, I don't want to do a triumphal narrative here. It's not the victory of Mormonism over Judaism. It's that that both religions are equally beautiful, equally true, paths to God and, and nearness to God. And, and we reflected on these events, and uh, we start with, you know, the uh, we start early on with the bar mitzvah, where I, I do feel spiritual meaning. I feel I've, I've come into the presence of God and the presence of my ancestors in this long, unbroken chain of, of Jewish covenant. Um, and I wanted to honor that, and I, I wanted to have an entry for Latter-day Saint readers so that they could appreciate Judaism the way that I once did, and that I still do, but my identities have shifted in, in different ways. And so we wanted it to be a celebration of, of both religions, and that's why it's it's kind of a a unique book and a complicated book. In converting to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you say that choosing that faith over Judaism was different than choosing other forms of Christianity that you had become familiar with. What are some examples of what drew you in that direction more than other Christian denominations? Yeah, it's it's the book. <laughs> we, got, yeah. we, we realized as we processed all this, right? Uh, we talk about this story when I was probably pre-bar mitzvah, and I'm at a friend's house, a birthday party, my little buddy, and his older cousin, his big cousin comes in, who's a teenager, and takes me into the garage. Evangelical, born-again kind of guy, right? And just doing what he's thought he's supposed to do, and his parents taught him to do, a preacher, pastor. And he takes me just one-on-one -on -one in the garage and says, Jason, I, I heard you're a Jew. I said, yes, I, I'm a Jew. He said, well, you know, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ— you're going to hell. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. Actually, we don't believe in hell. Uh, go on. And so, and he said, I want to give you an opportunity now. Confess Jesus with your mouth. And it was very... Even that phrase, he's pulling it from the New Testament, but to you, this must sound like some strange command. Yeah. And I'm like, how am I going to escape <laughs> hellfire or whatever you're talking about? If I just confess Jesus with my mouth right now with you in the not garage. with your feet, Jason. <laughs> and it was so <laughs> like mouth. dirty and secret, right? And just this is not how salvation is brought about. And like bullying and cornering somebody and you know getting them to confession out of them, a forced confession almost, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to let you leave the garage until you confess Jesus with your mouth. Contrast that with my Latter Day Saint friends. You've got questions. You know, we don't have all the answers. There's a humility. Um, we're trying to search for the answers just like you are. We're all on journeys. But we do have this book. And you can read it. You don't have to read it. But Dave and Shay, these, these critical characters, right? My buddies, they, if you want to learn more about what we believe, read the book. I can't turn down a book. 
I'm cur- I'm curious beyond all, <laughs> you know, beyond all uh, relief. So I I'm going to take the book and let let me be in control of my you know let me be the author and the subject of of how I'm going to deal with this religious question. But don't coerce me. Now let me say if we're thinking, I mean, part of that is just anecdote, right? Like you happen to have an experience with an evangelical that was more difficult that may not be representative of every evangelical and you happen to have a better experience with Mormons than some people have, right? Right. So beyond the individual reception side, do you feel like there's sort of deeper things that are in the theological structure independent of how you received it that spoke to you in Book of Mormon or in Mormonism than in sort of traditional Protestant teachings, even if they'd been presented much more palatably. Yeah, it seems like there were ideas and feelings that made a difference for you in the yeah, book. Yeah, and the Book of Mormon is immediate about it. It's, it is identifying that covenant Israel and the Jewish people, both the scattered tribes and, and the core Jewish people that have maintained identity are still remembered by the Lord, are still in covenant with the Lord. So already I'm at ease because I haven't been superseded. Yeah, I'm, I'm already at ease. The, the Book of Mormon's telling me, okay, you don't need to believe me yet. Yeah, this isn't the idea that Jews killed Jesus and, and are <laughs> sort of lost. A lot of Christian antagonism toward Jews is based on feeling like, the, you know, Jesus died at their hands, right? And you didn't see that in the Book of Mormon. And maybe, Blue, to clarify from the theory, there's two layers, right? You have the specific blaming for the crucifixion that's been tied to a lot of anti-Semitic violence, but you also have... When he says supersessionism, that's this technical term that says, look, Jesus is it, and the old stuff is done away, and this new religion is a replacement for the old religion. And I think that's the deeper logical structure that also contributed to anti-Semitism mm-hmm. in saying Jews are backward. They just didn't get the software update, right? And in Mormonism, it's harder to see. I think the there beliefs. are some supersessionist There's Mormons. There's some that supersessionist that Mormons. There's definitely places you could go. But I had an investigator on my mission who was trying to figure out the Book of Mormon and said, oh, it's a Middle Testament, <laughs> right? Because It we does. It bridges. The, so many yeah. of those themes of the Hebrew Bible are carried on in a different way. And then, yeah, you do have the overt Book of Mormon passages that talk about Jewish covenant. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. So Jesus, the, the Jesus of the Book of Mormon in 3 Nephi 15 says, the covenant which I have made with my people— is not all fulfilled. He's admitting, right? It's n- this is not all done. I- I've I've entered into history. I'm going to leave history, but this covenant that I've made with the Jewish people is ongoing. I can't cancel it. I can't end it until ever. I I, I suppose, but it's a different approach, and it's very clear. Whereas I think sometimes when we're reading the New Testament, we're we're unsure. Is is this it? Is the new covenant community those who follow Jesus Christ? Whereas in the Book of Mormon, there's there's these instances where no, the covenant with Israel, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is is going to continue on. And there's already this presupposition of apostasy, so they don't even—the covenant Israel, as they continue through history, they don't even know the true gospel anyway. So the covenant is just continuing with them, uh, regardless of what they believe or not. And that's a very—for me, a very Judaic point, that it's—the covenant exists— behavior, repentance, obedience, um, and this kind of necessity for orthodox belief is not as, as strong in the Book of Mormon. It's 
uh, as it is in, in maybe other forms of Protestantism where the correct belief is what saves you. The Book of Mormon's not not so interested. You we're saved after all we can do, which is <laughs> we receive a lot of criticism for that. But for me, that's a deeply Hebraic Judaic concept, right? So it was an easier transition for you. It sounds like you you could maintain elements of your Judaism even though you found a new connection with with Mormonism and with its with this scripture. Yeah, there was there was continuity, okay. right? The things yeah. I had been taught about repentance, it's not cheap. You you got to work at it. You've got to deliver the broken heart and the contrite spirit. And you got to to get that forgiveness. It takes work, right? Yom Kippur, you have to fast, you got to pray, you got to make the day holy. And the, the Book of Mormon is saying the same ideas about repentance, which I'm not seeing in other forms of Christianity as much. It's kind of just confess with your mouth and you're you're that's it and and bo- the book the book of mormon's telling me i've got to work at it i've got to i've got to turn around to god return to him and that's really familiar and i'm i'm seeing some some hebraic ideas here in the book of mormon that i can't deny and people that read the book can see more of that you unpack it really well and so you join the lds church and you become a missionary you actually go out to teach people and to find converts yourself and you're sent to uh, an area with a lot of Jewish people. And so now, how are you handling that? Because you're a former Jew. Are you Are you Mitch? Are you walking in with your <laughs> Mormons for Jesus shirt? Like, how did your mission affect your Jewishness? Oh, it is complicated. But in brief, at first, I, I have to preach to everybody. I'm thinking, I've got to reach my people, right? And and I'm not having good success. I'm, I'm getting uh, the Book of Mormon actually thrown in the trash by a, a Haredi Jew that's hmm. that's jogging around the track. And I'm realizing I can't, I'm not going to be able to reach my people the way I hoped. And I, I'm, I'm just taking a step back and I meet this uh, incredible Israeli Orthodox Jew that married a Latter-day Saint in, uh, in, in upstate New York and Avi. And I start just, just loving the guy. And and I he wants to build this beautiful um, garden and we we offer to help and we you know and I want to spend time with him I just like him I just want to be around he he reminds me of my people and um and he's curious about me but he's not not really that interested in converting and I'm like I'm but I'm charging forward and I I just kind of relinquish this anxiety about converting him and I just want to spend time with him and and love him and serve him and and that kind of changes my perspective that you know service is is uh, not just an opportunity to teach, as, as we think, as most missionaries think, but it services an opportunity to love. And that kind of changes my perspective toward all these Jews that I'm surrounded by. It's a really powerful part of the book. It's the Burning Book is the name of it. Let's go to your time at BYU. So after your mission, you attended Brigham Young University, which is the LDS Church's flagship university. And James, I want to ask you about this because you're familiar with this as well. Jason encountered a little community. He, he was able to find other members of his church that had Jewish connections and talk a little bit about that and some of the differences among Latter-day Saints with Jewish backgrounds. We get to meet a few different people with different connections and different desires and different religious sensibilities. Yeah, I think in general, Jewish memory has this strong pull on a lot of people. And in a Latter-day Saint context where we emphasize turning the hearts of the children to the fathers and these connections across generations as maybe even magnified, right? But then, yeah, you see different experiences. So, for example, we talk about Jason's friend Aaron, who had gone on his mission to Spain, where fascists were in control for an extended period, where there's a very long history of anti-Semitism. And he had like an overtly anti-Semitic mission companion 
that's going to inflect your experience differently about how do you integrate these two things, right? Uh, we talk about another friend, David Luna, who was a combat veteran after two tours in Iraq and had a lot of, had seen things and participated in things and, and had a lot of just unresolved trauma and stuff to deal with. And for him, he's just looking for any religion, right? What's a thing he can hold on to? And his Jewish family history is providing just, just other additional sources. So yeah, many different approaches to what it means to carry Jewish memory as a Latter-day Saint. And sometimes this stigmatized Jewish identity, but when you're also a Latter-day Saint. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, th these were important people for me to find at BYU because I was fresh off a mission. I had this burning desire to immigrate to Israel. <laughs> and that was setting my, my buddies kind of concern, you know, the flags of concern. Like, well, is he going to return to Judaism? You know, we he, he just went on a mission. Now he's, he's going to apostatize or something. Yeah. Um, but for me, it was this continuation of the journey. And there was some parts of my Jewish identity that I, I hadn't addressed or explored or been aware of. And I, and I felt I need to go to this land and this ancient homeland that, you know, we, my synagogue that I grew up in, we had an Israeli flag and an American flag right on both sides of the stage. And I, I needed to just connect because I lost a lot of that on in the mission field, the, the Jewish sense of time and the Jewish sense of land. And I needed, I felt I needed more grounding. So I, yeah, the church in the LDS church, for example, it could be Easter Sunday. We're getting, I think the church is getting better at this, but it could have been Easter Sunday, and you'd have people giving talks about tithing or something like <laughs> during during their sacrament meeting or during their worship service. Whereas Judaism lives by the calendar, has has right. its own calendars and has its own holy days and all of this, and and that sense of time is fundamentally different between these faiths. And it's, so you missed this and wanted to kind of get yeah, back into it. I was disoriented. And, but this and is where I, your Judaism persisted, and I wanted to ask about this because yeah. it seems like you're a very Jewish Mormon. Uh, yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> I never wanted to to convert, and that's how I describe it. I was I was called to be a Latter Day Saint. You could say I was compelled. Um, like you saying on a revelatory scale, right? A like revelatory you felt scale. God sort of touched you or sort of wanted you to. Yeah, do this. yeah. I, I you know, I, I couldn't resist the, the the call of God as I understood it, right? But the Jewish identity was was already fully formed and fully baked, and I went through that process. Bar mitzvah process was supposed to solidify me for the rest of my life in a in a Jewish life, and so that that doesn't just go away overnight because you go on a mission, or or you get baptized. Or you go to you graduate from Brigham Young University. There's there's something deeper there that lingers that refuses to die in a way, and and it's got to be addressed. It's got to be you've got to nurture it in some way. And so for me, going to Israel was that's the way to to explore these things. To you know to touch the land to, to you know to put my hand on the the Western Wall and 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 see the the space uh, where my ancestors you know worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and just to see what that's going to teach me. I didn't know what it's going to teach me, but I knew I needed to find out. You know, my gra my grandmother died shortly after my mission, and I was at her grave, you know, and pulling soil from the land of Israel is our, is, is our tradition to, you know, to throw on her grave. And I, I just, I need to figure out who I am, and I need to go there. Mm. And there, while you were there, you were still Latter-day Saint, but you would do that more in secret, and you lived more openly as a Jew, right? So yeah, 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 yeah. I I was an active member of the the Tel Aviv branch primarily, which is 
a great experience, which I never would have had had I gone to like the BYU Jerusalem Center or something like that. And I, I got to live this strange Israeli Latter-day Saint life. But but I, I felt connected to the people. I felt like I wanted to contribute to the Jewish collective. Even though I, my beliefs had kind of shifted a little bit, I still felt, what can I do? I, I met with this the, the rabbi of, of my youth, the, the head rabbi, and, you know, what, what are you going to do here? I was really worried about uh, rocket attacks. And I said, I, I want to study aerospace engineering so I can help the country deflect uh, rockets on their civilians. You know, a very, very secular thing, but a lot of underlying religious convictions that, you know, that, that go sure. into su- studying su- such a secular subject. But that's the kind of the kind of uh, way I was thinking at the time. This introduces another complication, and I can't remember if the young woman who you met at Brigham Young University who was concerned about Palestinians, was she a Latter-day Saint as well? No, she was a Palestinian Christian lama. She was a friend okay. of mine, too. We okay. overlapped the same time. This is good. James, why don't you um, tell us a little bit about this? Because this is another complicating factor, please. Oh, Lama was just super fun, right? And Jason talks about this, and I kind of relate that there's different cultural codes for how you talk in things. And Intermountain West, and particularly Mormon West, there's a little less assertiveness, and you don't want to offend people. And Jewish culture is, is more blunt, right? And so is Palestinian. So there are these commonalities. And so... For somebody who comes from those cultural codes, meeting and interacting with Lama was great, just a godsend. But yeah, it was really difficult for her with Jason that they're having these wonderful talks and he's planning to go to Israel and she's thinking, no, I don't want any more, right? Yeah, this gets into the Palestinian-Israeli conflict where Zionism has put pressure on land, like where are people building and who owns the land? And, you know, these conflicts are very, very difficult. And now Jason's encountering someone right there at school, who's saying, really? You, you know, because Jason, you were also showing sympathy, you were sympathetic toward the Palestinian plight as well. You, yeah. I see you in the book sort of trying to reckon with. There are Zionists who say, this is our land, I don't care. Yep. Um, there are others who say, notice the complications, and it seems like you do, but yet you still wanted to go. How did you, how did you talk to her about that? And what was her reaction? Yeah. She just saw me as this American kid who born and raised in Arizona, why don't, your, your life is good. Why do you need to come to, to my land, right? But she, little, you know, there's always things underneath the surface. And she's not a Latter-day Saint, and so we couldn't talk at that level. But, you know, there was a deeper level of things I was working through of my own Jewish identity, my own connection to Judaism, even after conversion occurred. And I, I needed to feel, I wanted to feel like that sense of being indigenous, and I kind of envied Lama, right? That she had that. She, she's from the land that I, I'm dreaming about. That I, the sec, you know, the, a whole chunk of my mission. I'm dreaming about the land of Israel, and here's this Palestinian Israeli, and I'm just jealous of her, and and, and also admiring her as well. But I'm, I, I want that too. Why can't I have that? Why can't I experience what you have? Why, why do you keep? Why do you want to keep it all to yourself? Why can't we share it? It wasn't ever about pushing Lama out. It was why can't we share it? And, and I need it. I need the land, too, because this is the only place that I'm indigenous, that I can take a shovel and dig into the soil and I can find my Hebrew ancestry, my, my, my heritage. I can't find that in Arizona. It's Navajo land, right? So, so that's kind of the, the struggle that we went through. But I kind of felt like she was denying me something that I need, too but I also recognizing what she needs. Yeah, maybe say a little bit more about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, kind of your your thoughts about it now that you're 
you know, you, you've gone on to get a PhD in Near Eastern Studies and things. So how do you reckon with that today as a Jewish person recognizing also the, the plight of Palestinian people? Yeah, I mean, I had great experiences there. Um, I mean, Lama was just the first introduction for me to acknowledge the humanity of Palestinians. And that was the basis. I, I got that from the Restoration. I also later got that from Abraham Joshua Heschel to frame my mind that these are human beings in the image of God. That's kind of more Jewish language. Children of God, right, in the Latter-day Saint language. But as I experienced, you know, their, their thirst for freedom and their thirst for sovereignty and their thirst for independence, it resonated with me because knowing Jewish history and what my ancestors had gone through, they wound up in America. But the reason they're in America is because they were driven out of yeah, Ukraine and Russia and This is the biggest irony to me when I look at this conflict, you know. Yeah. And so I can acknowledge that both peoples have a need for their own sovereignty, for their to control their own destiny. So I think that the Jewish destiny is pretty safeguarded. I mean, there's, there's threats, and there will always be threats that, you know, the state of Israel has the right to address, and they should address, but the control of the Jewish destiny is, is in the—that's was that's what Zionism gave the Jewish people. But conversely, the, the Palestinian people, they should—I believe they should also be able to control their destiny and, and have that, that self-determination. So I, I think that as, as both sides recognize each people's need— for destiny control, self-determination, that's where we get into a mode where we can make peace at some at some point. I think it was really powerful to see a memoir grapple with real people. Like we get to see this story, but through the eyes of you and the people that you're interacting with in, in real relationships. So yeah. there's really important studies and scholarship on this. But I think the strength of a memoir is we actually get to see you encountering a real person in your life that made you think about those issues kind of in, from a different perspective. I wondered for you, James, as you're helping write this, were there places where you disagreed with Jason or where you, I mean, you're helping him write it, but it's his book. So were there things in here that you were like, oh, I don't really like that, but it's your book? Yeah, I mean, so Jason and I did have talks about we have a little bit different I, I think broadly we come down in similar places, but definitely slightly different emphases on Zionism. And I don't feel the—I feel a, a deeper attachment maybe to diaspora Judaism than to the state of Israel, even though I have an uncle who was there, fought in Yom Kippur War, right? The, I'm just trying to get you guys to fight each other right now. Is that going to happen? Like, okay, go on. Well, the, the thing I would say, though, is because there's so many layers and complexity to the issue, the biggest narrative challenge was, okay, how do we take all the layers of what Jason thinks and find people for them? So, for example— mm. He's talked with a Palestinian Christian Lama while still in the United States and gotten that perception. We wanted to show separately there's the Kufas, who are Latter-day Saints, who live in the West Bank. And to get to church, they're crossing Israeli checkpoints. Yeah. And that helped us show that Jason acknowledges just the like day-to-day -day logistical difficulties of the current political situation. We've got an Armenian Israeli character, which is another important constituency there. We talk about Aaron's wife, who's from the Iraqi Jewish community. Early 20th century Baghdad was a third Jewish, right? Mm -hmm. And so what are those? I didn't know that, but yeah. Yeah, non-Ashkenazi, right? The Mitzrahi mm. and Sephardi Jewish communities who were in North Africa and... 
Southwest Asia had different historical experiences. We wanted those at the mm. table. So, and then of course we have Mustafa, who's Muslim from Egypt, to Jason meets at, at Brandeis, <laughs> which is an interesting place. But we wanted to just take this whole tapestry of positions and show w- what it was like for Jason to be in dialogue with each of them. Yeah, I think that that sums it up quite well. That's James Goldberg, an award-winning author of fiction, drama, and more. His books include The Five Books of Jesus and Song of Names. We're talking about a book that James wrote with Jason Olson. It's called The Burning Book, a Jewish Mormon memoir. We're going to take a brief break, and we'll be back for a little bit more about The Burning Book with Jason Olson and James Goldberg. Hi, my name is Blair Hodges, and I wanted to try something that most podcast producers would say was impossible. I wanted to make a show about religion and culture that all of my friends would want to listen to. And that seems impossible because I have friends all over the map when it comes to religion. Some of them are really devout believers. Others have been really hurt by religion. Some like to talk about faith, and others aren't interested in that at all. But all of my friends can be brave, they can be vulnerable, and they can be curious. So I took those three things, vulnerability, bravery, and curiosity, and I mushed them all up in podcast form to create Fireside with Blair Hodges. And there's a seat waiting for you right next to the fire where you'll meet nationally renowned writers, artists, thinkers, and activists, and all of them know how to reveal holiness in the gritty, in the earthy, mundane, everyday stuff of life. And the topics we cover might seem like they're all over the map. Season one explores nostalgia and homesickness and death and grief and time travel and disabilities and racism and mindfulness and the very nature of religion itself, all kinds of things. But what holds it all together is the curiosity, vulnerability, and bravery that we all experience together, warmed by the flames under a starlit podcast sky at Fireside with Blair Hodges. Sponsored by the Howard W. Hunter Foundation and the Dialogue Foundation. And if you're listening to this little promo spot, then you already know where you can find it. I hope you'll bring a friend because there's unlimited seating at Fireside with Blair Hodges. We're back with Jason Olson and James Goldberg, and we're talking about The Burning Book, a Jewish Mormon memoir. All right, Jason, so as we mentioned, you got a PhD at Brandeis. I wanted to hear a little bit more about the relationship in your life between scholarship and religious faith. Sometimes those are put in contrast with each other, that there's some contest between the life of the mind and religious activity. So I wondered how your religious life changed as you pursued higher education about uh, religious things. No, thank you, Blair. Yeah, it, it didn't it didn't affect me too much. <laughs> Maybe part of that is that I went to Brandeis University, which is a Jewish-sponsored institution. As many know, the Jewish tradition, scholarship is a form of of worship. Scholarship is the way that you you draw closer to God and his knowledge. You know, the, the study of Torah equals them all because it leads to them all when we're talking about the commandments. So I think in a Jewish context, it, there wasn't this distance or decoupling. I, I was encouraged to pursue scholarship because I, I'm trying to find truth unto its innermost parts, which is the motto of Brandeis University. Even though there's a secular kind of overlay at Brandeis, it's not like Yeshiva University where James and I were just talking about. That Jewish tradition of study is still there. And so I, the divergence between scholarship and, and religious faith wasn't so much the issue as my Mormonism and my Judaism. Hmm. And Still. that's where, the, that's where the, the tension and the friction came, because here I was just going deeper into Jewish texts and, and, and feeling the grasp. I mean, I would study authentic Hasidic texts, authentic Zionist texts, that, and, and they're, they have a claim on me. But then I'm also, also living this Latter-day Saint life in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> and there's just a lot more too, right? There's there's a depth and a richness of history in Jewish thought that the Mormonism can't compete with just on the grounds of, you know, not having that 
long of time to reckon with itself. Right. And so, yeah, I, I, I can imagine that encountering powerful Jewish thought would, would feel magnetic. Yeah, yeah, that's, and it was a wonderful experience because I had, I got that opportunity. I, I was at that yeshiva, right, in Jerusalem f- for just a month with David Luna, but then I go to Brandeis and here's my opportunity to really engage Jewish texts on my own terms without the confessional or denomin- you know, denominational, but just academically with neutrally in the sense I, I don't have to live the, you know, this Orthodox Jewish life to study these texts. I can study them as I am now. Mm. But I, I still came at the text with all the, the faith, the colorful faith that I have. Mm. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. Before we go, I think it's really important that we also address what's happening right now. Um, we're seeing uh, an increase in anti-Semitism right now in the United States with prominent figures in the media saying things and a lot of things. And I, I wanted to spend a minute talking about that increase of anti-Semitism and just give you the mic for a minute to talk a little bit about how you're experiencing that and talk to listeners about what you would hope people can do to push back against that. Yeah, no, thank you, Blair. Yeah, the conundrum and the irony of anti-Semitism in America right now is that it comes from the far right and the far left. And sometimes it feels like it's squeezing American Jews, you know, compacting them in this trash compactor almost. And it's difficult because many American Jews want to have good relationships with people on the right the center, the left. Give us a quick example of like sure. something from the right, something from the left. Like some people might even be picking up on the language and, and the cues. Yeah, I mean, on the far right, it's the kind of anti-Semitism we've seen over the past century, right? White supremacist, white nationalist anti-Semitism. Jews are, because of their compassion for all human beings, that's the B'Tselem Elohim, the uh, the image of God in every human being. Most Jews are pretty like pro-immigration, for example. They're they're they'd like uh, they were there were immigrants ourselves. I mean, no, we escaped U- Russia and Ukraine through <laughs> through many different decades, and so we we want to make a way for you know different peoples of different colors to come to America, and so that's a threat, right, to to white supremacy white supremacists diluting, you know, their, the the white race, et cetera, white genocide theory, and all these things that they blame Jews for because they consider Jews to be the fulcrum that's bringing in these deplorables. But from a Jewish point of view, they're not deplorables. They're images of God. So we're contending on the far right with that. Is there also the idea of Jews having this, I mean, this is really old, but this idea that they control all the media and the banks and, uh, you know, this type of stuff where... Yeah, Jewish, but that's on both the right and the left, right? Right? Maybe a century ago, Jews are communists and Jews are capitalists. <laughs> <laughs> whatever they we control. don't, they're whatever we don't like, right? right. It's sort they're, of how well, it works, right? And yeah. it's just, yeah, it's this really old circulating stuff where conspiracy thinking and anti-Semitic thinking meld again and again, right? And there's almost not a conspiracy <laughs> That you, if there's a conspiracy theory, someone has linked it to the Jews. And for whatever reason, over centuries, there's been this psychic power where it's a self-reinforcing narrative, right? That because there have been depictions of Jews as this shadowy force in the past, it's easier to project whatever the current unease is onto that same thing. And yet, like Jason said, it doesn't necessarily matter. Political persuasion, I think think you're, when you bring up conspiracy, that's very close to the heart of the issue. Hmm. Yeah, I'm concerned, like QAnon, that it's a digital blood libel. I mean, all, all that takes is some of these QAnon people, well, those are the Jews that are eating kids. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what they said many centuries and 
And that actually might <laughs> century ironically century. could reinforce it if they see some of these old texts like the Protocols of Zion or something, in, which has been thoroughly discredited yeah. in, in every possible way. It's ridiculous. But they see this yeah. old thing and say, wow, look, even these old books, you know, <laughs> show that this is yes. happening again. Yep. And it's it's very difficult to combat that kind of thinking. I think, though, that if you're going to have this anti-Semitic thought always circulating, one thing you need to do is continually contain it. And the way you contain it is by making sure we're having active conversations about Jewish life, Jewish dignity to counteract that. Right. I don't know. if we'll be able to just stamp out the thousands of years of conspiracy thinking, cer- certainly not in the age of Twitter. This is not yeah. a time where, where we're going to see that put to bed, but we can still play an active role in helping contain it by giving other people reason to recognize it, to stand up for, for Jewish dignity. And and that's, I think, the really vital work that we need to be engaged in now. Yeah, absolutely. On the far left, I'm concerned about the view that the state of Israel is the, the big Jew, the collective Jew. And it ha- and this this big Jew, smack in the Middle East, has no place to be there. For me, that's, that's coming at it from a totally different point of view, because for me personally, the only place I've ever felt indigenous is is the land of Israel. I'm, I'm fully committed to the United States of America, and I, I love the Constitution, and I'm committed to the principles of, of the United States. But this indigeneity for, for most Jews, right, is found in this land where you can, you can find your roots in the soil, literally. And so this denial of any kind of Jewish connection to the land of Israel and this condemnation of the existence of the big Jew, the, the collective Jew, as, as the state of Israel, I see as this other angle of, of anti-Semitism that trying to negate Jew, the Jewish nation from the family of nations. So we have this this far right wing, Jews as individuals are a problem, controlling this, controlling that, and we have this far left, Jews as a collective are a problem. And it's it's there's a squeezing, right, that uh, that we can all feel, that I can feel just, I mean, my family is, you know, many members of my family are Jewish on the, the mother's side, so we're all feeling it. What kind of practical advice would you give? Um, James talked about intervening in the discourse, maybe on social media and with family and friends. What kind of things do you suggest people do when we see these acts of anti-Semitism when we hear about it in the news. It's how we consider human beings. I you know, I think it was Elie Wiesel said, you know, the, the true Jewish concern is a human concern, right? I'd have to go back and quote him, but um, he, he connected the Jewish conscience to humanity, right? And, and, and I think that the first step is just we acknowledge that it was initially Judaism that brought into this idea in the world that every human being is an image of God. And the forces, the anti-Semitic forces want us to deny that, negate it, forget about it, so that we can create other kinds of structures that deny humanity to different uh, groups of people in different ways. But we have to be careful on the Christian side of things, because this is what happened to Nazi Christianity, is uh, they denied those parts of their faith that that they believe came from Jews. And, and one of these was, hey, all these people from all these different backgrounds come from one set of parents, Adam and Eve, and they're they're all images of God. And this is, this is what Abraham Joshua Heschel came when he came to America. He was kind of fighting the ideological war against Nazi Christianity from the soil of America because, you know, if he stayed there... He's gone. And I, I think Heschel, for me, points the way to try to bring him back, you know, to eliminate racism cha- or challenge it. And then also to realize that collectivities, on the other hand, nations have a right to exist too. And that helps us with, you know, that the Jewish people have a right to be a, a nation as well on that side of anti-Semitism. So th- those are kind of things that I think could help people to, to move through anti-Semitic temptations. That's Jason Olson, author of the book, 
The Burning Book, a Jewish Mormon memoir. And if you want to know why it's called The Burning Book, you'll have to check out the book. It's part of Jason's conversion narrative. But Jason, thank you so much for being here and talking about your book today. Thank you. And James Goldberg also joined us. He's author of books like The Five Books of Jesus and Song of Names. He's a great award-winning author of fiction, drama, poetry, and a lot more. James, it was great to sit down with you as well. Oh, good to be here. So good.